ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How are you feeling right now? Delighted? Confused? Absolutely ropeable? Whatever emotion it is, it probably feels like it's coming from somewhere deep inside you. But my next guest argues that our emotions aren't just pure expressions of our inner selves or chemical processes in our brains. She says they're actually shaped by cultural and historical forces. Pragya Agarwal is a behaviour and data scientist, a visiting professor of social inequities and injustice at Loughborough University in the UK. And her most recent book is called Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions. Pragya Agarwal, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited by this topic because I I think of myself as quite an emotional person (laughs) and they feel so visceral. Are you saying that they're not produced within our bodies or by our brains? No, emotions are a response to a stimuli. So they are produced as a response to something that happens around us. But there is a process that happens. We encounter a stimuli. We... um, have an expression of emotion in response to that, but the, then we tend to regulate it according to the social norms, and then we express it according to the social norms of what's acceptable and not. So there is a pathway to emotional expression, which includes this regulation process. And this regulation depends a lot on what our context is, but also what our gender identity is and what expectations are imposed upon us as men and women. I found it fascinating how you look back in history at at the different uh, emotions that were allocated to the genders and and the... was seen as appropriate emotional expression. When did you see the the modern way of allocating emotions start to happen? I think if you dig back into history, all the emotions in itself haven't been studied as a separate area of research because, again, emotions are considered something not scientific, not important enough. So it's only in the last 50 years or so that even the scientific community has started paying attention to emotions as a valid area of research. But if you look back into historical archives and historical documents, we find that these ideas of masculinity and femininity were being imposed very, very rigidly from a very early time. And so we see that the masculine attributes were stoicism and rationality and and em- women were considered emotional or hysterical, what we've come to know as hysterical. And the fact that women experienced emotions really strongly but couldn't regulate them very well meant that they were often considered that they couldn't be um, out in the professional domain or in the political domain. And so they were relegated to the domestic domain. And so these ideas of what emotions were valid and acceptable in men and were valid and acceptable in women actually started taking roots in a very, very long time ago, which meant that things like some some emotions became highly politicized, like Anger. So we see even in the case of Medusa, for example, we see as, as one example that anger was seen to be a very negative emotion in women, but it was considered a powerful emotions uh, emotion and so perfectly OK for men to express it. But women's bodies were too fragile. Their minds were too fragile. So they couldn't handle such a powerful emotion, which meant that it had very drastic consequences if they experienced anger or expressed anger. Wow. So there's a long historical um, yeah, roots in, in how our 
modern ideas of emotions and gender have been shaped as well. Yeah, so we can have children, we can have childbirth, but not <laughs> anger. Our bodies go not up to it. We're speaking with uh, Pragya Agarwal, who's a behaviour and data scientist and a professor of social inequities and injustice at Loughborough University in the UK. Her book's called Hysterical, which is such a trigger word for a lot of us because if it's been applied to you, you know that it's not just gendered, but it's it's a kind of differential value that's applied to female and male emotions. Praga, I mean, has it always been a bad thing to to have these emotions allocated and valued differently? Or can you say, look, you know, it's different but equal in some way? I mean, we, when we talk about gendered emotions, yes, of course, I'm talking about how it impacts women more because of of the patriarchal forces and how um, people who are uh, lower down in systemic or structural hierarchies tend to um, have less permission to navigate these boundaries or b- bonds. But of course, these uh, gendered ideas impact men as well. So for instance, men don't cry is kind of a, a notion of masculinity that men should keep their emotions bottled in. They shouldn't show any of such emotions. The problem lies in how some emotions have got certain powerful impact or kind of power associations, while certain emotions have considered negative emotions, depending on who's expressing them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always been like that. And I, I think for women, especially the word hysterical is very triggering because it's so much associated with hysteria. As you know, it's based in medical misogyny about how women's bodies were considered fragile. A lot of their uh, problems were considered rooted in their uterus or the womb flapping around their bodies and unmanageable. So they couldn't handle it. So instead of actually what has happened is instead of actually focusing on the forces of oppression or the systemic uh, ideas that can shape these kind of emotional expressions, we have tended to focus on um, the problems of expressing these emotions, which meant that means that women and men have to navigate these bond boundaries all the time and and be hyper aware of these kind of norms. Well, t- let's talk a little bit more about anger and, and how that uh, plays out when women express it too. You've written about your memories of Bollywood films as a child and what they taught you about female anger. Yes, I mean... Yeah, I mean, for any kind of representations, if I see, um, um, I've, I've seen uh, growing up, um, women were not supposed to show anger because you're not, not a nice girl or a good girl if you're showing anger and uh, good girls don't get angry, um, especially as as I see it, saw it role modeled around me in mothers or in women around me. Um, anger was seen as something that uh, was um, considered um, a kind of you're out of control. And even in research studies, we've seen that when, people were shown anger expressions in men and women, um, men were seen to perceived to be angry because their context demanded it. While for women, it was assumed that they're just an angry person. So it is attributed to women's personalities that you are just angry. And I think we're having a broader conversation around rage and women's rage and what it means and why is it so valid to be angry right now because we have a lot of reasons to be angry. And what do we do with that anger? Um, So yes, I think anger has become very politicized, but it's always been like that, especially when we talk about leadership in women and work and women in leadership, anger and emotions in particular, but especially anger, is, is a really valid and relevant conversation to have. Well, yes, Michelle Obama wrote in my, her most recent book about being a very aware that any expression of emotion would probably see her branded as an angry black woman, which had layers and layers of meaning attached to it. Are women of colour perceived differently when it comes to emotion and, and anger, Pragya Agarwal? 
Yes, look, uh, all of these kind of stereotypes and perceptions are not that women are not a monolith homogenous group. Um, it's all all have intersectional effects. So women and um, gender and race intersect, gender and disability, gender and any kind of form of identity intersects. But when actually racism and um, sexism intersect, that means that women of color, black and brown women in particular, are uh, less allowed to navigate or to step outside these norms or boundaries that have been allowed for them. Black women in particular, there's a whole notion of aggression or intimidation associated with them. Um, and so angry black women is a trope we hear all the time. We've seen that with Serena Williams as well, that she was called angry black woman so much on the court because um, any form of kind of aggression or authority from her on the court, uh, which would have been perfectly acceptable in a man or perhaps even a, a, a woman, a white woman, um, was was seen as negative and she was heavily penalized in the media for it as well. Um, so yes, I think women of color are, are even more hyper aware of these norms. And so they have to constantly regulate the emotions which affect their mental and physical health. We're talking about the the gendered understandings of emotions and the way different emotions and different levels of emotionality are attributed to different genders. Pragya, we should go back to basics for a moment and look at the science. How solid is the evidence that girls and boys, for example, have similar emotions, that they're not innately different? There's a lot of research about it. And um, I know that if there has been a lot of scientific myths um, uh, being spread around for a very long time that men's brains were different and women's brains were different. Um, but a lot of these, as I look in my book, uh, a lot and other neuroscientists have done that as well. A lot of this research is quite flawed because it's based on very, very small samples size. And also this kind of a circular fallacy where you assume something and then try and prove it. And it happens a lot in science. But also uh, in a lot of the studies where people have tried to show that men and women brain are different or they respond differently or it, it, the between group um, analysis has been done but within groups analysis hasn't been done which means that yes some women might experience that or some women might have different brains to some men but some women might have different brains to other women as well um, so um, there's a lot of research to show that when children are born, they actually have the same kind of emotional expression until they start conforming to their membership groups. But we also know that parents, even in the most gender equitable and egalitarian households, treat boys and girls very differently. Um, the kind of words or language that's used, girls are uh, considered um, uh, to allow to take le less risks. Boys are um, allowed to take more risk or to be more rowdy. Um, and I constantly experience that in my own um, life as well. Um, and we know that um, we've seen through research that until the age of nine or 10, girls and boys are actually not um, modulating their emotions differently. So there was a research study that was done which showed um, pictures from yearbook and girls and boys were not smiling in any different ways. But as soon as we move uh, slightly older, as 12 or 13, and when they start conforming to these expectations and internalizing them, we see that girls are smiling so much more in their yearbook pictures or school pictures while boys are not doing that. It's because girls are constantly expected to smile and create comfort for other people. And and boys are not uh, asked or even um, uh, expected to do that. So there isn't uh, any evidence at all that shows that there is a difference between 
a neuroscientific difference or neuroscientific basis to these differences. So the difference actually lies in these kind of societal and, and structural kind of expectations and pressures and the way we internalize them and conform to them as we grow older. That's really interesting how you say that women are expected to create comfort for others by their emotional expression and, and their visual aspect. How is the emotional workload distributed between men and women generally and what impact does that have on both of them? Gosh, how long do we have to talk about, <laughs> about it? About five minutes. <laughs> I mean, um, emotional labour is something that is very gendered. And, and no matter what we say, and I know we're moving towards gender equality, but there's a, again, because of this kind of expectations, the gendered expectations that women should, cre- as I said, create comfort or or carry this, this mental load of doing things, which are often seen to be invisible, and they're unpaid and invisible in the workplace, but also at home. So there was a research study that was done by Samsung, which I wrote about recently, that women are asked more to maybe do men more mentoring or uh, do kind of more organize, organizational roles, like get a card signed or organize get outs, uh, get away things in, in workplaces or even asked to make tea for people in the workplace, in offices. Um, and at home, um, often in heterosexual relationships, mother would mothers would take on the load of organizing their children's schedule or organizing birthday parties, organizing Christmases, all those kind of things which are often just seen as, oh, it just happens or because they're just good at it, um, women take on that labor. Um, and often we internalize that and we think, yes, this is my role. Um, so if the house is untidy, it's my job and I feel uh, worried that I'm going to be judged for it and my husband's not that worried about it. So that kind of emotional lo- la- load or mental labor is often invisible and often unpaid. And that happens in ho- uh, hospitality industry as well. Um, and and it has an impact throughout society in workplaces and in homes. Yes, indeed. Pragya, you wrote a fantastic piece for The Guardian in the UK about how you and your young daughters during lockdowns used to go out into the backyard and scream. <laughs> Is that part of the way that we can start to fight back against these rigid ideas about what we may or may not feel? I think uh, I I do think that in raising my children or in parenting, I'm trying to break those norms and model those kind of behaviors. Um, so when my children, oh my, I have got three girls, I've got twin girls, um, six and a half year old, and when they get angry, I, instead of saying calm down or there's no reason to be angry or don't be angry, I try and understand or say you have a valid point and you're you're okay to express all your emotions. Let's think about how we channel it. Let's think about what we can do, what would help you um, not be angry or or actually manage that uh, that anger, um, and and I think screaming is such a um, an, a non-feminine thing because of there's a lot of. Uh, uh, stuff written in our literature, but also in art, that screaming women are seen as ugly, or um, it's kind of the distortion of the face. And I think we are not taught to scream. So initially, when I started doing that, I found it really difficult to scream loud. My children didn't have any problems at all, but I just couldn't <laughs> scream. And so I think that is a sort of a rebellious act to let or go of these emotions to actually scream our rage out, to express them more healthily and say, actually, my anger or my rage or my frustrations, anxieties are very valid. And um, rather than judging somebody on their emotional expression, try and think about why why they are the way they are. Pragya Agarwal, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Pragya Agarwal, a data and behaviour scientist at Loughborough University in the UK. Her most recent book is called Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions. 
It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.